0: Hello and welcome to Grubbing in the Filth with me, Tom Sharp. Can you think of a photo taken in a relatively naturalistic setting? Maybe a family photo in the back garden or even in a wood. It doesn't even really need to be a naturalistic photo. It could be an urban one or it, it doesn't matter much. Just try and think of a photo. Here's a little mental game I want you to go through as you listen to this. How many living things are in that photo, do you think? And how many are just out of shot? Think of that photo Not in terms of the photo itself, but in terms of the place it was taken. If there's a tree in that photo, there's probably fungi in the photo too. Down among the root system, as well as up on the main body of the tree itself. Lichens and mosses too, on the trunk of that tree. Beetle larvae live within the wood. Moths light upon its surface. Among the leaves, there are galls. Swollen growths within which wasps are developing. Upon the leaves, aphids feed. All this from a single tree. In the background of your photo, and these few things, but a few of the creatures colonising that tree. Any grass in your photo? Think of the ants that crawl through the undergrowth, the tiny flowers dotting that lawn, attended to by bee flies, and down in the soil, endless varieties of creatures are living their own soil-bound lives, clambering through the substrate or burrowing below. Beetles, fly larvae, springtails, earthworms. All this, a very, very brief impression. All this before we've even mentioned microscopic life. All this before mentioning a single mammal or bird, along with the requisite parasites, mites, ticks and fleas. Cast your eyes at the people in that photograph, each one in their own right, an ecosystem, not to make you itch. Consider how many creatures I've mentioned, which we consider tiny, are in turn parasitized by creatures smaller yet. And if you have a body of water in your photo, that's a whole other story. Consider all this life within a single fleeting impression of the wider world. Consider quite how much life surrounds you. Consider all this life within a single fleeting impression of the wider world. Consider quite how much life surrounds you. And consider the interconnectedness of all this life. What am I driving at? I'm driving at the way you can see a place in terms of the life occupies it, and the way we can view animals as connected objects within a place, the way we view heart, lungs and skin and brain as all elements that make up and facilitate the success of the body. This being an invertebrate podcast I'm especially mindful of the invertebrates but can't help but mention plant life and vertebrate life and fungal life and so on simply because it would be impossible to consider invertebrates as an isolated group. In this episode we're going to consider ecosystems and we're going to do so in a way that might make the topic feel less overwhelming. We'll examine ecosystems and the role of invertebrates within ecosystems by looking specifically at gardens, and we'll think about gardens in terms of life, in terms of the life that a garden supports. We'll consider what we can do to make our outdoor spaces conducive to life, although I'd point out you have to work exceptionally hard to make any space truly dead. Biodiversity is not only exciting, it's worthwhile. The world in which we live is reliant on communities of animals and plants in a way that can feel very abstract but truly is not. Without biodiversity, the natural world within which we exist begins to collapse. We'll see what we can do to try and play our part. If you lack a garden, like me, there's still plenty for you here. We'll have a chance to think about the notion of ecosystems, a chance to consider the diversity of life and and a chance to think about the importance of different habitats. We'll also have a chance to consider what those of us who lack a little piece of land can do to play our part. All this when we meet Joel after this nice bit of music. Two ways. It can be a podcast about gardening or a podcast about life, given focus through a gardening lens. My guest, Joel Ashton, is a gardener who focuses on working with nature for nature. His practice is seeded, rooted, and sprouted from the premise that biodiversity and wildlife are valuable things to be nurtured through the spaces which we as humans curate. I was thrilled to hear from him and to learn from him, even as someone who lacks any kind of garden space of my own. If you're like me, there's still plenty for you here. Our garden chat is practical and theoretical, a way of understanding the wild world by considering how it can be imitated, and a way of understanding the interconnectedness of life within outdoor spaces.
1: Hiya, Joel. How are you today? Hi, Tom. Yeah, good, thank you. Yeah, how are you?
0: I'm all right. Perishing cold, but other than that, fine.
1: <laughs> is that yourself or just general general weather?
0: <laughs> um, or sort of internally and emotionally. No, uh, it, it is cold. I think I'm also very tired, but we'll cope. We'll cope.
1: It's a year to overcome Good. obstacles, isn't it? I think so. Yeah, can't get any worse than last year, <laughs> can it? No, God. No.
0: <laughs> Could you tell us a little bit about kind of your, you, someone I'm speaking to who isn't directly an insect or an invertebrate person, I guess, though they certainly come into your work a great deal. Could you let us know maybe your professional and your personal relationship with the natural world?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I suppose I've got a big love for. For butterflies, um, I suppose really my love for the natural world kicked off as a youngster when uh, I would go out with my dad um, to do a lot of bird watching. So uh, you know we'd go out and find bird nests or just spend a bit of time in the local woods. Growing up in Lincolnshire, uh, we were lucky enough to have a, a, a quite a decent wood, a, a big size wood, born Woods, right next to well, within within sort of ten minute. A bike ride to where we live. So I spent a lot of time there uh, in my youth where I would sort of watch all, all sorts of things, found badges set, would go ringing birds with a uh, local um, Forestry Commission officer who would looked after the woods. And yeah, just a, a really nice kind of immersion in the natural world from an early age, really. Dad was a keen fisherman, so we used to spend a lot of time sat on the riverbank trying to catch fish in between not getting tangled lines and <laughs> um watching kingfishes and things fly past. So yeah, just that sort of being outside and that, that kind of childhood that I think a lot of a lot of the time nowadays is is getting a bit forgotten, unfortunately, with the modern generation of kids.
0: Challenging to access, I guess. I think there is a lot of work going into kind of kids getting into those things. I know that the whole idea of rewilding of the the child as well as the landscape, which we'll get onto in a second is a a discussion point. So you run Hazelwood Landscapes and the words that you you work by, the kind of the slogan of your company is working with nature for nature. And I wondered what what you mean by that
1: and how that mantra influences your work. It it sort of goes hand in hand, really. and, And, Obviously, originally, I started the company as a landscaping company. So offering all the kind of general services, patios, fencing, turfing, that sort of thing, which, you know, most people will want done in their garden at some point or another, which is the kind of the more structural and the practical side of things. But of course, you know, once I learned that there was more to a garden than just the aesthetics and the practicalities for us, and that it could be used to attract wildlife. And, you know, once I started exploring this kind of an avenue, uh, I then realised that actually, you know, you could work with nature and for nature. So that it's really a case of building habitats for, for wildlife and obviously going from that basic kind of landscaping up to, you know, creating, taking the next step, if you like, and creating habitats for wildlife. So, for example, things like the orange-tip butterfly, my favourite butterfly, uh, is attracted to garlic mustard, which is also known as Jack by the hedge. Some of you may know it. And funnily enough, is found in verges uh, across the UK and uh, bottoms of ditches and bottoms of hedgerows, um, where it is, uh, you know, often seen in big blocks uh, and obviously it comes into flower in May when it's these lovely white, blocks of colour in the down our country lanes and the orange tip butterfly lays its eggs on this plant so uh, by simply planting that in a garden you can expect to attract the orange tip butterfly not only to provide nectar for that adult butterfly but also for the females to come and lay their eggs on the leaves which obviously then uh, develop into caterpillars and the caterpillars leave the leaves and so you are therefore creating uh, an entire home if you like for the entire life cycle of the butterfly and something as simple as that i mean i did it myself oh a good five or six years ago in my own back garden and i i challenged myself to film the entire life cycle of a butterfly well the butterfly is easy the egg is fairly easy because it's bright orange um and therefore is so is the caterpillar as that develops into sort of third and fourth instars. stars it's you know gets to a chunky size uh, but finding the chrysalis, I knew, was always right, going to be yeah. the needle needle in the haystack, you know. <laughs> um, and, I, and I did. I, I found this chrysalis uh, within not too many minutes of starting to look, actually. It was at the base of a, of a, a privet bush that I'd planted the year before, next to a block of gar- garlic mustard that I'd transplanted from the bottom corner of the garden. And I was just gobsmacked to find this chrysalis. A fantastic little triangle. I mean, they are just incredible uh, structures of nature really and you know so that really opened my mind up as to well you know that insect would not be here had i not have planted that garlic mustard in the garden And then of course i went on to film the chrysalis hatch into the butterfly and filmed the full life cycle which i was absolutely chuffed about and i've got a little video of it on my youtube channel uh Your garden with joel ashen if anyone's interested it's one of the first videos i did um, but, um, yeah, absolutely thrilled to see that, but it's not just butterflies, of course, you can do the same thing for for birds, for bees, for dragonflies, for frogs, for newts, for toads, for you know anything to do with the natural world. you can attract it into your garden, providing it is in that area um and so, I guess the whole working with nature for nature is you know working with it to uh, think about the habitats that are found in the wider countryside beyond our garden gates and our fences um for the benefit of it you know so that you are creating those habitats and those homes that will hopefully bring you an entire wealth of wildlife fantastic well when you're talking about that you mentioned the
0: the orange tip butterfly and you mentioned this the, the wild mustard and the mm. the situations in, in which that wild mustard would typically be found outside of the garden context and i was yeah. wondering in in creating a, a garden space that is conducive to to wildlife and that is friendly to wildlife to what degree are you trying to recreate a non-garden environment to some degree You know, a wild space
1: hmm. well this is always a thing it's a fine line and a balance between what the clients would normally visualize as an inverted commas garden and my job of course nowadays i find the biggest The biggest challenge i face is is pushing boundaries into what people would class as a garden um so it's trying to design something that that is aesthetically pleasing but also good for wildlife because of course you know as good as a bramble patch is for example for wildlife with a lot of nectar a lot of cover for nesting birds uh, and obviously fruit for birds in the autumn and, and mice and other things um it's not the most <laughs> pleasing on the eye to look at if it was in the garden setting. So it's getting that balance. And I think through a lot of the designs that I've kind of tweaked over the last 15 years, I've got to the point now where we can offer a lot of habitats that are very beneficial for wildlife, things such as a coppice belt, for example, which is the planting of trees, or sorry, well, small trees, things such as rowans or crabapple, goat willow, that sort of thing along with some native shrubs as well, things like hazel, rowan, um, rose. Sorry, rowan is a small tree, of course. Uh, but hazel, rose, mm-hmm. spindle, uh, thorn for the brimstone butterflies, and that sort of thing, in a line, as you would as if you were planting a normal hedgerow, mm-hmm. but selectively managing um, those shrubs as they grow up to selectively coppice back down to ground level almost. Um for two or three reasons firstly to to encourage fresh regrowth from the base which is nice and dense which creates really good nesting cover for birds Um. also by letting these bushes grow for over a three-year period um, you are letting them flower and then bury whereas if it was a hedge obviously it would be trimmed once or twice a year and it might be good it might offer a little bit of protection for birds for nesting potential but of course if it's not flowering and it's not burying then you're missing out on all the invertebrates that are going to net on those flowers and all the potential bird food for later on in the season. So things such as your hawthorn berries or your rowan berries. Um, so, of course, you know, and you try finding a, uh, an untamed hedge, shall we say, in the wider countryside nowadays, most things are flailed within an inch of the life at the end of summer. So all right. the berries are knocked off them for the birds, for, for field fairs, for red wings coming in from Scandinavia. Um, so it's recreating those habitats in the garden which and it's it's trying to get out of the mindset of thinking that needs to be a trimmed box (laughs) you know right um, yeah yeah. along the side of the fence and and it's letting those the, the bottom of that hedge for example where you could grow your garlic mustard for your orange tips having that as a transition then into a lawn rather than it just being mown lawn trimmed hedges you know which is what you would expect to find in a back garden setting And in my eyes, it looks 10 times more attractive than having everything clipped and cut and trimmed and manicured, which is, unfortunately, we are a a nation of tidy freaks a lot of the time. You know, Mm -hmm. Uh, everything we do, our parklands, our green spaces, our gardens, you know, they're all sprayed, managed, flailed, cut, collected. You know, nothing ever has any kind of uh, mess anymore, which, of course, is where the wildlife will thrive. Um, you know, and having little log piles under those hedges and in those coppice belts will encourage, obviously, um, uh, you know, toads and newts and frogs to hide and wood mice to make a little home in and all that sort of thing. So it's, in, it's creating these entire ecosystems, um, which I think can look very attractive in a garden. And, and I think as, as long as we can kind of take a step back from what we are used to looking at, rose borders, hedges, kind of hedges, striped lawns and you know bring some of that wild space if you like into our gardens I think it can really really look quite good as well so uh, but it's all about perception of course as I say and 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 changing people's minds which I think a lot of people are doing nowadays a lot of people are sort of leaning towards this way of gardening. I think so yeah I think
0: there is a kind of a draw away maybe from the overly manicured space I I certainly I, I agree with you I think that a wilder space is a a more pleasant space if only for the fact that you do get all the the, the life that comes to it if it feels more wild yeah
1: absolutely yeah it, it comes alive you know you instead of looking at a kind of a, a space devoid of life you are looking at more insects you're looking at dragonflies more birds um you know and everything else that comes with it more butterflies so it's yeah it can only ever be a win-win in my eyes but then i'm probably only slightly biased mm-hmm
0: well you've mentioned a few invertebrates and this being a, an invertebrate podcast i've got to steer things back to them at every at every sure. opportunity um although of course i'm i'm keen to fly the flag for the natural world more broadly <laughs> but when you are planning uh, a garden when you're working with nature to what degree are you considerate of invertebrate life specifically and and why would that be
1: well i suppose if we start with why because they are the bottom of the food chain you know without the insects we wouldn't be here it's as simple as that without the bees without everything else you know they are the bottom of the food chain so um you know we, we absolutely need insects uh, far more than they need us um so you know and and, and going to your first question uh, yeah i mean I, I i do try and consider it as as a whole package everything that I can do to attract insects so for example you know if you look at a pond Mm -hmm. I mean I I make a lot of wildlife ponds I've made nearly 100 of these now in my career and 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 they are one of the best things you can put in a garden for wildlife a lot of people think yeah okay pond is okay for frogs toads newts maybe a dragonfly but that that's where it starts and stops well actually they support far more quantities of life than, than just that i mean for example invertebrates you know the dreaded mosquito i mean <laughs> it's no one's favorite insect but it plays a huge role in providing a food source for bats you know our pipistrelle species and, and, and many other species of course which can eat two to three thousand mosquitoes a night so um you know, by providing that habitat, provide providing the, the water source for the mosquitoes. Obviously, they're then hatching out and providing that food source for bats. So the invertebrates are playing a big part um, in that. And I've actually had bats flying around a water body when I've literally had a hose in, been filling it up before. You know, <laughs> um, in the evening, it's that quick to attract wildlife. <laughs> and, and of course, you know, it's little things as well. So I will always put rotten logs on the side of a pond. Uh, for things such as the southern hawker dragonflies which like to lay their eggs into that rotting timber and of course the larvae then hatch out and go into the pond and then of course spend you know a year or two as that adult nymph uh, before they emerge out and obviously turn into these wonderful acrobatic um, terrors of the sky of the insect world if you like. Um, So of course but equally uh, providing that habitat for the dragonflies and the damselflies You're providing food uh, food for birds as well. Um, So, you know, ponds, they are great for, as I've just said, dragonflies and and damselflies. But um, things, if you're lucky enough to have a a water body in in the countryside or you go out to the fens or anywhere like that and you see a a series of ponds, um, for example, the hobby, um, obviously a summer migrant in between a a kestrel and a peregrine falcon, if you like, um, they most of their diet is actually dragonflies um, and damselflies so yeah so so providing these insects and providing these water bodies you are going to help uh, produce more food for for the birds so you know in turn you're providing now for bats for birds uh, obviously the amphibians goes without saying but your smaller invertebrates obviously your pond skaters your uh, water boatmen which of course are flying insects and they'll just literally find the water body it doesn't matter wherever you dig a pond <laughs> you're going to get water boatmen and pond skaters turning up within 48 hours no problem at all how they find it i don't know it's quite in, quite incredible uh, but they do they always do um and of course you know a lot of what I do then as well is the planting of wildflowers around the edge of the pond, the margins. So things such as ragged robin, purple loose strife, common fleabane, uh, watermint, all these sorts of things are absolutely brilliant for our butterflies, hoverflies, um, You know, flat-headed flowers, things such as sneezewort, yarrow. They're great for hoverflies, which hoverflies don't really get much of a mention a lot of the time, but they do play a, a key role in, of course, pollinating a lot of our plants. Uh, but obviously your bigger plants, things like your your purple loosestrife, absolutely amazing for bees. Um, and of course, we don't need to talk much about the decline of bees around the world. It's pretty, pretty apparent these days. Um, so all these wildflowers around the margins are, are creating that nectar source uh, for your, you know, like I say, your bees uh, and butterflies and um, your uh, hoverflies as well. Um, I mean, ponds. We've lost something like a million ponds in the last hundred years. Um, in the UK so it's it's an alarming figure and of course that's a lot of habitat that's been lost uh, being an ambassador for the British Dragonfly Society I uh, I like to do my bit to shout about the importance of, of ponds for uh, dragonflies and damselflies but um, they, they really are an incredible resource so yeah so it is so I do think very openly and, and very whole uh, wholeheartedly about every way you can attract insects as well because I do think they are the basis of everything. So, I've mentioned the ponds. I've mentioned the trees and shrubs with the flowers and letting them flower and cutting them on a rotation so that they flower in profusion every year. But also a lot of meadows. I create a lot of mini meadows, wildflower meadows within back gardens, and these again are offering another diversity of plants that aren't the marginal pond plants uh, for a longer flowering period for attracting more species of insects. So, they really are quite uh, quite. Cracking little places, some of these gardens once they've been established for a year or two, and and the life, you know, you just look across them in July when everything's sort of in its peak, in its zenith, if you like, early July, and they're just moving with insects. I mean, just hundreds of insects. I um uh, last year I, I I had a wild carrot uh, plant in the garden. Uh, it's umbellifer. It's a bit like cow parsley that we see in our verges, and um, on one plant it had uh, ten. Ten decent-sized flowers. These are sort of maybe, you know, four or five inches across, and um, sometimes bigger, of course. And there was um, there was a thousand insects on this one plant. Um, small, only small insects, but that was on on one wild carrot plant. And I thought, God, if everybody had one of these in the garden at this time of year, it just numbers would be huge in terms of what it would do for the population of these specific insects. And and that's just one plant, so you get a whole mosaic of plants and of course you are going to provide for a lot a lot of different species of insects so um yeah it's certainly i would say probably at the heart of everything i do really the insect life
0: well on behalf of uh, of my mates the dragonflies and the the bees and so on thank you very much um you're very welcome <laughs> <laughs> well speak speaking of insects and things then we know that without them we're, we're basically done for without them so we do need to raise bee numbers. We do need to attract. I mean, mentioned mosquitoes. Mosquitoes, we don't like them. But if we haven't got mosquitoes, things aren't eating mosquitoes. We lose them. We will. We would lose everything without insects, really. Um, but then within a kind of within gardening, we have the notion of the pest. So you mentioned caterpillars earlier. Some people might perceive a caterpillar as a pest, and I was wondering. What is your kind of your your take on on pests and, and pest management? I guess, um, aphids, caterpillars, things that people don't like to see in their gardens. How do you feel about these animals?
1: Well, I mean, I mean, to me, it's uh, I, the funny thing is, I would I plant plants for these inverted commas, pest species. Um, obviously, I I don't really class them as pest species because they are part part of the the natural food chain. But I I understand from a gardener's point of view how some people can see certain insects as problematic um for example aphids on roses and that sort of thing but then you know to do that you 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 would hopefully just try and encourage more ladybirds because of course ladybirds are a natural predator Mm -hmm. of these insects so instead of you know trying to spray chemicals all over your roses and you know find some ladybirds around the garden and transplant them onto your roses and they'll 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 do wonders um but I suppose a lot of the pest species again in inverted commas (laughs) are going to be things such as what people class as the cabbage white butterflies and actually you say when people say cabbage white there's actually three main species of white there is no actual cabbage white butterfly there's the small white the green veined white and the large white um and all three of them will lay on our brassicas so broccoli brussels sprouts um cabbages all that sort of stuff um so I suppose you could do one or two things really. I mean, as I say, I've planted four of them before where I've literally planted uh, a pot of broccoli and put it on my patio for small whites and green vein whites to lay their eggs on because I think, you know, they they need the, the wider countryside. The, everything's getting sprayed within into its life these days and unfortunately the, the caterpillars can get wiped out before they've even had a chance to develop and turn into a pupa. Um, so, but if you're trying to protect what you're growing obviously you can net off parts of your garden uh, i would say if you can you know leave a little bit for the butterflies and because they're only trying to do what we're trying to do and exist so um you know either that or or, or grow them in a greenhouse or if you can't do that or you haven't got the room then like i say you know um offer a bit of uh, a bit of food for these uh butterflies um in some in some other pots on the patio you know and don't, don't worry about them being eaten. Expect for them to be destroyed, you know. Um, I planted a dozen uh, Brussels sprouts in my garden the other year. And within a season, they were host to no less than over a 1,000 large white caterpillars, um, which, you know, just goes to show the, the importance of having just a few plants. Now, the unfortunate thing is with whites is there is a parasitic wasp uh, which will actually parasitize the, the larvae, the caterpillars. Uh, so unfortunately, there is quite a high percentage death rate, and that's why the large whites, for example, will lay their eggs in batches of, say, anywhere between 20 to 100, 150 eggs, because they are working on the principle of, you know, sheer numbers and volume to for, for, as a survival rate. Uh, a bit like mosquitoes, I guess, you know. Um, so... Um, you know that's why they do it because there are these parasitic wasps, and I've watched them before around, um, you know, around my Brussels sprouts and things. These little black wasps sort of crawling around the leaves. If you look around any caterpillars in the summer, you will no doubt see a few crawling around. Quite a grim death, actually. Um, but um, yeah, anybody, uh, anybody with a, a, a weak stomach, then you know, take your head to off for a second. But actually, the you know the the, the parasitic wasps lay their eggs inside the caterpillars the the grubs of these parasitic wasps then eat around all the l- organs within the, the large white right caterpillar to keep it alive so that they can develop inside it and then of course they burst out of the live caterpillar um poor little thing <laughs> while it's still while it's still alive so yeah pretty grim it's a bit like alien really you know <laughs> um but um that's the natural world for you it's not the only example uh, and i've since learned that there's actually parasitic wasps that parasitize the parasitic wasps um so you're going down again in scale so and a- actually scientists don't actually know um in many of these invertebrates at what stage that stops you know how small does it go um you know, so it's quite remarkable really and yeah, you know, the, the world of insects is oh god we know uh we know probably a tenth of what's out there really <laughs> but no if, if so if you can go back going back to it you know if you if you really want to grow some Brussels sprouts or some cabbage that you actually want to harvest and eat yourself then the best way is to obviously net it off but again if you can provide some habitat uh, in, uh, in the term you know in the form of a, a pot with a few bits in because uh, yeah every little helps and all that. If someone
0: has limited space and limited resources what can they do to work with nature for nature?
1: If anybody listening to this has think, is thinking well I don't have a piece of a land that's mine, or a garden that's mine. I rent a property. Then do what I've done and and um, make yourself a barrel pond or two. You know, get an old sort of whiskey barrel or, um, you know, uh, you know the old kegs or whatever. Um, you can buy them online for pretty cheap these days. And um, yeah, get some plants in there, and and you will be able to to attract things like damselflies and dragonflies to it. Frogs and toads will find it, no doubt. Newts will. And I've got a little instructional video on my YouTube channel uh of how to make a wildlife barrel pond and um yeah they're great little things because of course you can take them with you if you move you haven't got to fill them in or anything like that you know and and they do attract so much life you'll get i've had newts and frogs in mine god alone knows how they get in them but they do they climb up the sides or whatever um and they do attract dragonflies damselflies flies and other invertebrates uh some hoverfly species as well which have these uh, quite grotesque little um, rat-tailed maggots that, um, you know, obviously live in the water themselves until they hatch out as the adult um, hoverfly, but um, they're all part of life, you know. Um, And, um, yeah, so they really are a great little resource for so much wildlife. And, of course, birds to come and drink perch on the edge and, you know, have a drink. And if you've got some rocks or baskets or cobbles in there, then obviously they can get in and have a bath as well. So yeah a wildlife barrel pond if you can is absolutely the best thing you can you can do to help wildlife if you if you're limited on space with
0: ponds and things i, I know i mean my friend david ho- hopefully you're listening david if you're not then i've caught you out but if you he, he installed a pond in his garden and within a day there was a, a diving beetle there i don't understand how they seek these water bodies out as well as they do but but they seem able to In 1990, a set of ponds were dug in Oxfordshire. These were called the Pink Hill Meadow Ponds, and they were intended as a case study. What benefits would these ponds have for local wildlife populations? In particular, attention would be paid to plant and invertebrate life. The ponds were monitored over the course of seven years. The colonisation of these ponds by invertebrates wasn't desperately rapid, at least as far as the surveyors could make out. A few months after they were dug, four to eight new species had made their way to the pond complex. I must stress that's four to eight that were able to be observed and noted. In the three years that followed, species richness climbed. By ninety three, around fifty three species of invertebrates were noted. Over the course of seven years this continued to climb. Snails and bivalves, shrimps, mayflies, dragonflies, damselflies, stoneflies, bugs, water beetles, alderflies, and caddisflies, could all be found at the Pink Hill Ponds, none of which had been introduced by human intervention. In total, 165 species were recorded between 1990 and 1997, including eight nationally scarce species of beetle. Now, all this is failing to mention the microscopic species, and all this is without mentioning the diversification of the plant species, or the impact the invertebrate population had on vertebrate life. Now, Pink Hill was intended to be an excellent habitat and it is better than any barrel you can get or any polluted water body. But Pink Hill speaks to the importance of ponds. So if you can pond it up a bit, that'd be fab and the little bunch will be grateful. Um, I think it was on Springwatch or something. They were talking about how if you have no pond in your garden, but you want to provide this kind of environment, one thing you can do is you can bury a washing up ball you know, leaving the kind of the top bit exposed. That being a kind of similar principle, I guess, would would something like that be something you'd encourage?
1: I mean, yeah, naturally, I would say any water body is better than no water body, purely because even if it is just a little water bowl, you're still providing, you know, with a few cobbles in, you're still providing shallow water for birds to bathe and drink. Um, and of course, other mammals, you know, wood mice and things like that that we don't often see during the daytime, of course. Uh, badges, foxes, you're providing them with a source of water, uh, which, uh, you know, ponds have declined massively in the UK by about to the degree of maybe a million or so more ponds over the last sort of century. So um, just by having some water in the garden is a lot better than not. But the only thing I would say about these little sort of um, washing up bowls, that sort of thing, is obviously with it being such a small body of water, they do heat up very quickly. So you will get a lot of sort of algal blooms and things. So the more water you can have, obviously the longer it takes to warm up, the cooler it stays and the less issue, issues you have with um, uh, with sort of algal blooms, you know, and that sort of thing. So, uh, But but yeah, I mean, certainly I wouldn't discourage people from having little uh, little washing up bowls sunk into the borders. I mean, actually, uh, they are a brilliant little resource for, you know, baby frogs and things like that, a nice little refuge because obviously frogs, when they emerge, you know, that people associate them with ponds and rightfully so with the frog spawn. But of course, Frogs, newts, toads, they spend a lot of their life outside, probably three quarters of their life outside of a pond, um, you know, actually foraging for food and hibernating elsewhere in the garden. So if you can provide some little sunken habitats with a little bit of water in that's nice and cool and damp, uh, put a few logs and things over the top so cats can't get at them. And then these, of course, are a brilliant little hideout for uh, frogs and toads and newts and things throughout uh, many, many months of the year when they're not, not otherwise in a pond. So, uh, so yeah, there's always that element as well. You don't have to, have to have just an open body of water in a little bowl in the middle of the lawn. You can sink them in your borders, and equally, I guarantee you, if you lift a few logs after they've been in the ground for a few weeks, then you will find an amazing amount of uh, wildlife that has actually taken taken up refuge in these little sanctuaries.
0: Well, I've, I've not got a garden. I've not got a balcony. I'm two stories up, but we have got a bit of green... Uh, by the bins. So maybe I'll, I'll creep out and I'll install a secret barrel pond behind the bins. That can yeah, be why not? Give it me. a go. Yeah. <laughs> my lockdown project is a secret secret barrel. <laughs> yeah,
1: gorilla barrel ponds, yeah.
0: There you go. Yeah. Um, covert gorilla
1: barrel pond. That's it. Might coin that one and start chucking a few around the country. You're more than welcome to. I like the idea of this. <laughs> As a broad statement, would it be fair to say that if you can replicate
0: the the wild spaces that you typically see in the place you live, you're probably onto a
1: winner. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, you know, if you look at the garden centres in the UK, uh, there needs to be a big reform in in what they are pushing towards um, selling as plants, things such as fitinias, um, you know, and that sort of thing, which are they're okay and you know, they're, they're planted in obviously on big scale in car parks in Sainsbury's and Tesco's and where the supermarkets are available of course <laughs> but um you know they they're, they're planted on a big scale but they, they don't have much benefit for wildlife and generally what you need to do is look at look at the habitats around you you know these insects that are flying into Tesco's or Sainsbury's car park and seeing these plants are going what on earth is that that's not a hawthorn flower <laughs> that's not a, a dandelion that's you know I've never seen that before and OK, some some are good. And and of course, you know, we can get hung up on, on natives, particularly when it comes to the herbaceous order section, um, which which is in the book again. A lot of my planting is non-native planting, but it's very, very good pollinator plants. Uh, so things like Verbena bonariensis things like Nepeta catmint, uh, things like Echinaceas, you know, they're still very good for uh, butterflies, bees and other insects. But of course, you know, these evergreen shrubs that are ploughed into these big car parks are kind of almost nondescript really they don't really give a lot in terms of wildlife benefit so in answer to your question yeah absolutely just look over your fence look at the trees and shrubs around you go out into the countryside look at the wildflowers that are growing from spring until the autumn and um, generally speaking wherever people are around the world you know stick with your stick with your natives as best you can because that's what the local wildlife the indigenous species are going to be used to
0: Brilliant. Um, a question I forgot to ask you earlier. I wanted to ask you about, um, I've been reading about the value of dead and decaying material in, in yeah. woodlands, not in gardens. So a fallen tree, um, for example, you could see that as something that should be cleared away in a woodland space. But there's some incredible fact like a, a a dead oak tree contains more living cells than a living oak tree just because of the sheer amount of things that that thrive on decaying matter. Could you tell us a little bit about the role that dead and decaying material plays in terms of gardening for nature?
1: Yeah, well, I mean it's uh, it's a huge role, really, because of course that's the uh, the bottom of the food chain. Everything that's in and around dead and decaying, dead and decaying wood, even. I mean the uh, the importance of deadwood is a is a huge point, and of course it's brilliant for many things such as our lesser stag and stag beetles which I was fortunate enough to stumble across uh, my first ever stag beetles in Colchester in Essex this summer or last summer and um, yeah really 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 amazing grubs I mean they're like something off of uh, you know I'm a celebrity or something you know that you expect to see them in the jungle they're giant white grubs And um, of course, they spend many years, you know, five to seven years underground as this form, doing all the growing and all the, you know, kind of the hard work before these insects obviously pupate and then emerge as these amazing stag beetles uh, that we get throughout the UK, of course, obviously stag beetles, uh, the larger of the two species being more south and east than the lesser stags which of course are more widespread but um yeah, so without that decaying timber and of course that's underground they they can't live on rotten wood above ground because it just dries out too much so they have to be in rotten wood underground so anything you know ash elm uh, oak uh, lilac they've been found in as well i know so you know most most types of wood will have some form of benefit to wildlife but particularly those species for attracting our uh, lesser stags and stag beetles which of course are some of our most impressive beetles if you ask me uh, obviously stag beetle being the largest but um, yeah amazing amazing stuff and uh, of course from that obviously you are then feeding the rest of the food chain so uh, really is such a, a key component I think in any wildlife garden to have some dead and decaying wood if you can and of course even if you've just got some logs you know stick them upright in the ground dig a few holes uh stick them in the ground maybe a third of the way in the ground so you've got a good foot you know 18 inches in the ground pile the soil back around it and leave them as upright structures and of course then that's going to be a brilliant option for a a lot of these beetles and insects and everything else and of course with that you could then pepper them with holes and expect to provide habitat for some solitary bees and wasps as well in the wood above ground so kind of a double whammy really so, why, in particular,
0: do you recommend having them vertically? Is that just so you get the a degree of the wood under the ground?
1: Yeah, so obviously, having them in the ground will provide that rotting habitat for the stag beetles and the lesser stag beetles, of course. but, as I said just said that you know having them out the ground um provides habitat if you drill some holes in them, some four to sort of twelve mil holes, just varying sizes, that'll provide some real nice nesting cavities for things such as solitary bees and and wasps and things which of course are uh, an equally important part of the food chain.
0: Fantastic well one kind of in terms of decaying material something that I was thinking about recently um, back in the autumn I guess this would be so it's not really relevant at the moment but is the discussion about fallen leaves Mm. and there was a lot of talk in kind of the local area um, not that about seeing people but seeing on sort of Facebook groups and things about know when are they going to come and take away our leaves that we've put in bin bags and and there was a lot of discussion around what is to be done with fallen leaves and whether they are best left in the garden obviously you know on the pavement they're a bit of a a risk to to elderly people and so on and and so I can understand you want to clear the pavements up but how do you feel about kind of about fallen leaves on the lawn and things like this
1: well, I mean, again, I would always advise people just not to throw them away. Either, you know, do one of two things. You know, one, you know, put them back under. Uh, for example, if you've planted a new hedgerow or any new trees, obviously those leaves that are going to rot down into the soil are going to be a great nutritional addition to uh, the roots of these establishing plants. So, and equally, older trees, you know, older trees and shrubs, you know, they still need to find uh, enough nutritional value. Uh, each year to provide new shoots and new leaves of course every single year of their life so by adding that decomposing material the leaf litter etc to the base of these trees you are going to definitely help them in you know maintaining lots of growth and uh, lots of vigor and of course therefore providing lots of leaves and lots of food then for caterpillars and everything else Um, but also you know if you don't want to sort of put it through your borders because you've got lots of plants in there and that sort of thing then put it in a compost heap And, of course, by letting it rot down, you know, you can introduce or um, expect to find, if you like, uh, things such as slow worms, which, of course, will love compost heaps and the warmth that they produce. Uh, And, of course, grass snakes, you know, by having a compost heap. um, I know a few people are a bit squeamish about grass snakes, but they are harmless. They don't bite. And, of course, they will be attracted to compost heaps, particularly if you can put a rubber liner or some roofing felt, old roofing felt or something over the top, to keep those grass cuttings warm because then that acts as a brilliant incubator for the eggs when they are laid in the summertime uh, and of course you can then expect to see the baby grass snakes kind of crawling, or sort of wriggling out and crawling off um, and in the sort of back end of the summer uh, which are fantastic little things of course. Uh, so yeah you can provide habitat for many many things just from you know, nature's waste products. So uh, yeah, by all means, I'd never, never recommend bagging them up, certainly.
0: I'm quite taken with the way that invertebrates can colonize available habitats, newly created spaces. And there's something oddly moving about the way that wildlife thrives in spaces that we've neglected. Obviously, if you create a space which is deliberately conducive to wildlife, that's brilliant, but I want to tell you about how invertebrates interact with less curated spaces. Brownfield land is land which has previously been developed often for industrial purposes, and which, as such, has often gone through a degree of pollution and soil contamination, old factories knocked down and so on. So, how does old knackered land compare with the lovely ponds of Pink Hill in terms of attracting wildlife? In 2007, a section of brownfield land in Peterborough, around two hectares, was sectioned off to be used as a demonstration site. The land will be used to show how invertebrates colonise brownfield sites, making use of a typical disused and unloved environment. The site was littered with brick rubble, sand and gravel, and concrete. Sectioned logs were also introduced, and these various materials were formed into mounds and piles on the bare clay soil, much of which was left exposed. The site was left to develop naturally. Over the course of eight years, an open mosaic habitat developed. Looking at photos, once is the landscape transformed from bare soil littered with brick and rubble, to a green, vibrant landscape of scrub and grass. The broken heaps of bricks are visible now among tall, reaching grasses and prickly gorse. It's important to state again that the life which flourished on the site did so without being introduced by humans. And of course, the invertebrates moved in, taking advantage of the wrecked landscape. Surveys carried out ultimately were able to record 403 species, but inevitably this will be less than the true number of species able to flourish, simply owing to the impossibility of comprehensively surveying four hectares when one is dealing with creatures of such relatively tiny size. Twelve species of dragonfly and damselfly were counted, three species of moth, twelve species of wasp, 79 species of beetle, 33 species of bee and 168 species of fly, and a great deal more. Among the animals discovered to colonise the site, a number were noted as scarce, endangered and, in one case, previously thought extinct. Canvey Wick is another great example of a flourishing brownfield site, a one-time oil refinery in Essex. This site is now said to have more biodiversity per square foot than any other site in England. It's a haven of endangered invertebrates owing to the diverse landscape, the varied materials and therefore habitats that dot the site. What do we learn from demonstrations like this? We learn the degree to which invertebrate life, and life more broadly, will succeed when given the space to do so. Life will flourish without a great deal of intervention, beyond the provision of space and the provision of time. If you build it, they will come, as they say in a film which I haven't seen. You mentioned your YouTube channel, and I know you've written um, a book as well. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about, about your, your book, Wild Your Garden, and about your, your YouTube channel, which is a, a really fascinating and really um, instructive channel, I
1: have to say. Thank you, yeah. Um, yeah, so the book uh, was commissioned by Dolan Kindersley. Uh, was released in April um, oh, last year now 2020 it was <laughs> a bit odd saying that but uh, good in a way um yeah so um larger garden and it's um it's a good little resource I think for anybody looking to create any kind of habitat in their own garden and it covers everything from wildflower meadows wildlife ponds uh, nectar borders if you want to attract insects you know what plants to plant what trees and shrubs to plant how to lay out your garden how to build all these structures, and then of the course, as a probably the most invaluable part of the book in in my mind is all the plant lists at the back for different areas. So it's got plants for shade, plants for chalk, plants for clay, plants for hot areas, plants for shady. Like I say, you know, and so it's a really good little resource I think for anybody looking to create their own little wildlife habitats. It doesn't matter what it is, uh, and it's pretty much a how-to. Uh, to, to do make all these little areas so um yeah hopefully it's had some really good reviews and i think uh, a lot of people have come back to me and said you know it's really helped me and, and that's the best part for me mm. along with the youtube channel is when people are commenting saying look here's what i made because i'd seen your video or i bought the book and now i've made this pond and here's some dragonflies and you know that's the, the best bit for me is is knowing that it's helping create habitats for wildlife and of course that's the the main aim, and that's why I started the YouTube channel back in uh, May last year, just to, again during lockdown, just to try and help people to give them that kind of next step up from the book, if you like, to actually visually show them how to make some of these habitats. And mm. um, I mean, the, the, I did a time lapse of a pond, how to make a wildlife pond, only seven minute video, and that's had over half a million views in the last six months now. So I think the appetite for this sort of thing is huge. Um, and actually, I get a lot of people contacting me from um, from Indonesia, from India, um, Africa, all around the world saying, I, I really want to make one of these myself. You know, can you point me in the right direction of X, Y and Z or here's one I made and here's the wildlife. And, and again, it's just so nice to know that it's having a positive effect and helping create some um, really important habitats worldwide now which is um, which is great and of course youtube is so good for that i don't think there's a better platform itself
0: no well it's it must be incredibly rewarding seeing that those things come back not only because you know it's people engaging with what you're doing but like you said it this is it's important that these things happen it's important that spaces are rewilded and that animals and wildlife is able to thrive in a way that in many ways, has been curtailed in the, in the last mm. however long. So yeah, it's yeah. be fantastic. But yeah, I'd, I'd encourage anyone. I've I've watched the the pond video myself. Like I said, haven't got a garden, haven't got any kind of garden space.
1: But when you get one, you know what to do.
0: <laughs> I do, I do. But yeah, I'd encourage anyone to to go and check it out and to read the book.
1: Oh, thank you. Yeah, and then that's like I say. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, climate change is a global issue. It's not just an issue within the mm-hmm. UK. So my challenge is, of course, when somebody does one of these ponds and then says, uh, "Right, I'm in Malaysia. What plant should I put in it?" And I'm sort of sitting there thinking, "Right, hang on, uh, let me just, uh, you know, delve <laughs> deep into my uh, uh, encyclopedias and see what would work, you know, or do a bit of googling." So, um, but I, I love helping people out and knowing that it's, you know, um, having a positive effect. So, uh, yes, I strongly recommend anybody to, uh, if they're in the northern hemisphere, to grab a copy of the of the book and hopefully it things help things create create will lots more have come to you
0: it just is a fact of life that whatever you do it's going to have some effect that the invertebrate community will discover the the world you provide them as will as will birds as will you know, slow worms and things mm. yeah. you know if you if the population is in place they they will find the things you leave out for them i think it's quite humbling in some ways but joel thank you so much for speaking to me about about what we can do with our garden spaces, whether or not that's a, a limited space and about you know the habitats we can provide, something that I think is a, a really valuable thing. So thank you. And I'd encourage people to go and check out the YouTube channel, check out Joel's book. And yeah, thank you again for spending time speaking with me.
1: Oh, you're very welcome, Tom. It's been an absolute pleasure. And uh, I can only hope that uh, after listening to this, it's inspired a few people to go out and create a few more habitats for wildlife, which of course is the main aim, and the more um, the more sort of mosaics of habitats we can create across the country, uh, see it as a bit of a patchwork quilt, if you like, from the air. You know, the more little pit stops we can create for these animals, the more they can move about, the more they can spread the population, and that is, of course, the end result. So, no, i um, thank you very much. It's been uh, been fantastic, and as you've said, YouTube channel. I'm uploading um, weekly on there. Lots of little tips on how you can help wildlife in your own garden. Uh, some of the projects I've been working on um, just tonight about to release a, a three part episode on a, a very special bird that I was fortunate enough to find on the side of a road last year and uh, rear and then release a few weeks later, which is uh, yeah, quite an endearing story. So, uh, yeah, have a look at that later on tonight if you can. That'll be hopefully a good one to watch. Absolutely. And if you're compelled
0: by the notion of a barrel pond or you want to see those lovely stag beetles you mentioned, if you fancy a bit of Attenborough even. It's all there upon the channel, so yeah, head over there.
1: It's all there, yeah, absolutely.
0: Thank you again, Joel. Cheers now. Brilliant. Thanks, Tom. Cheers. Bye-bye. I hope that if you are someone with a garden, someone with the capacity to engage practically in the provision of habitat, this episode is informative and helpful. For me, as a gardenless individual, it was interesting to listen to Joel and to consider invertebrates, not as individual animals, which interests me, but as part of a network. It was interesting to think of these creatures in terms of their connection with the landscape, the role they play in relation to all things. The garden is a nice little microcosm of that more worldwide notion of the connected lives of all things and of the difference we can make by being considerate in our curation of the planet and the space available to us. Let us go forward trying to be mindful of that network within which we exist. I struggle to engage sometimes with environmental issues, not because I don't care, but because of my perception that those with wealth and power who live without consequence, will ultimately decide the fate of our world based on what's important to them and their ongoing comfort. I dare say I'm right to a point, but developing, from the ground up as it were, consideration of nature has to be a good thing. And so, if this episode spawns a single barrel pond, then, to a great many tiny creatures, that will have profound implications. That enough will do for me. Grubbing in the Filth was written and produced by me, Tom Sharp, with music by Will Happ. And thanks again to Joel Ashton. If you want to get in touch, please do email grubbinginthefilth at gmail.com or follow me on Twitter at gitf podcast or Instagram at grubbinginthefilth. Thank you for listening and bye.